Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 2. After nine weeks in Romans 1, we finally make it to Romans 2. All right. Now, before we read the text, let us come before the Lord and pray for his blessing on the reading and the preaching of his word. Father, we thank you so much for the supernatural gift of your word. We affirm that it is inspired and breathed out by you. We believe that it is inerrant and without error. That we believe it's infallible and that it will never fail. And we believe that it's sufficient, that it's what we need to know about you to have a relationship with you and to be saved. Father, we come to your word, Lord, with humble hearts looking for you, Lord, to give us what we need. We are the people of your pasture, Lord, the sheep of your hand. And you, Lord God, are the one who provides all our needs, even this need, the need for your word. And so we pray, Lord God, that you would you would open our hearts to the truth of your word, that you'd prepare our minds to be focused to receive the truths that are contained in your word, and that you would use it, Lord God, to draw us nearer to you in, in relationship and to, nearer to one another in fellowship, and that you would give us a heart, Lord God, that is submitted to your will in our lives. I pray, Lord God, that you would be glorified in our midst today in this worship service and in the rest of what we do this week. We give you the praise and the honor and the glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> the late author Jerry Bridges once wrote, It seems the Bible goes out of its way to portray the kindness of God in stark contrast to man's total undeservedness. So while you're in your Bibles, would you please turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel is in the Old Testament, and it is uh, right after 1 Samuel, which itself is right after the book of Ruth. And, and for those of you who might have trouble locating that, we'll just start from the beginning. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 
right? Then Joshua judges Ruth, and then you have First and Second Samuel. First and Second Samuel. So Second Samuel, and we're going to be beginning in chapter twelve, and then we will start with verse one. Second Samuel, chapter twelve, verse one. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said, "There are two. There were two men in a certain city. The one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children." It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there was, came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. And he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said, to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. <clears throat> Imagine what it must have felt like for King David, a man after God's own heart, a man that God himself appointed to be king. Imagine what it would have felt like for him in that moment when he was slapped in the face with his own hypocrisy. Because that's exactly what Nathan did. Nathan the prophet was sent by, by God to David to confront him, not just in his sin, but to, to confront him in his blatant hypocrisy. You see, Nathan didn't just tell him what he did was wrong. Right? He got David to pronounce judgment on someone for the same kind of sin. And then he showed it to them, to him, and said that he is the one who committed that kind of sin. You see, David had an illicit affair with a married woman. He got her pregnant and then tried to cover it up by enticing her husband to go home and sleep with her. But that didn't work. And if that weren't bad enough, then David had this woman's husband, one of his loyal soldiers, he had him murdered. And then he took Bathsheba as his wife, and then he tried to hide his sin from the rest of the world, which, by the way, is bad enough. Horrid, hor horrific, horrible. But then Nathan comes to David telling him about a man who had done something horribly wrong, and David, knowing right from wrong, knowing what God's decree is, right? recognizing the horrific nature of this person's sin, he issues, without even a slight hesitation, a condemnation and judgment of this man, all the while, at the same time, completely ignoring the horrific nature of his own sin. What blatant, blatant hypocrisy. It wasn't until Nathan confronts him with his own sin, does he recognize the dissonance that's inside of himself? Nathan, right, as Nathan asks him, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Now, why, why would David, 
a man so closely connected to God? Why would he have the ability to clearly see the sin in the lives of other people, but then callously ignore the same kind of sin in his own life? He could, how could he be so fast to pronounce judgment on someone, but then casually forget that he deserves the same exact judgment? Well, for David, it was because of a false assumption that he had made about the nature of his relationship with God. That's why. I mean, why wouldn't he? He's the king. God raised him up to be king. He was pronounced to be a man after God's own heart. He was was the man who faithfully slew Goliath in a way to honor God and defend his name. God used David to subdue the nations around him. God used him to unite all of Israel together under one banner. He was the one who brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel, right? He was obviously connected to God. He was obviously anointed the king of God's own people. And because of that relationship, David then presupposes on God's grace in his life thinking that he, about who he is and how special his relationship with God is, that somehow, that the standard by which he judged other people, that somehow this unique relationship with God didn't allow those rules to apply to him. Sounds a lot like our government, right? And that is the hypocrisy that Nathan confronted him in. David saw his relationship with God as an entitlement of grace rather than an obligation to live in holy reverence before God. And that's the issue that Paul is addressing in the text today. The fact that there were people who were historically granted a unique relationship with God, a special relationship with God, rather than walking in humble reverence toward God, They, like David, presupposed on God's goodness toward them by living in blatant hypocrisy. That's the point that Paul is making as he writes this part of of today's text. And as you remember, Paul, in his letter, it was explaining to the Christians in Rome what the gospel is. In fact, the letter to the Romans is the clearest, most developed explanation of the gospel in the entire Bible. You want to know what the gospel is? Read the book of Romans. Paul had never met the Romans before this time, and he knew that the church was not founded by any apostles, but he heard about their faith. And so he writes them this letter to clearly outline for them the theological explanation of the gospel so they were all on the same page. And Paul begins his explanation with the words, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul declares that the gospel is the power of God to save sinners. And then in the beginning of verse 18, he starts to unpack in detail what the gospel is, the hope that the gospel gives, and how to live in light of the gospel. That's really the summary of the entire book of Romans. It breaks down neatly into those three categories. The first part is about what the gospel is. The second part is about the hope that the gospel itself gives. And the third part, beginning in Romans chapter 12, outlines how we are to live 
in light of the truth of the gospel as people who have been saved by God. But in verse 18, Paul begins to explain the bad news of the gospel that makes the good news good news. It's the bad news of who we are in light of who God is. It is the bad news of the human condition. In fact, in verse 18, from verse 18 to the end of the chapter, Paul unpacks for us the foundational problem of humanity, which is, right, which is our reaction to God, right? our rejection of God. Mankind instinctively knows, as Paul outlines, that God exists and because, because God has shown it to them in creation, but mankind suppresses the truth about God in his unrighteousness because mankind does not want God. He wants to be autonomous. He wants to do what he wants to do. He wants his sin. And so he doesn't honor God and he doesn't worship God as God and he doesn't give thanks to God, but instead trades the one true God for the lie of worshiping false gods. Paul's indictment of mankind is simply this. Man knows God, man hates God, man rejects God for idols, and so God gives them up to their own desires, which is sin. And as a result, they become thoroughly corrupt. What Paul proved in that first part of Romans is that mankind is justifiably deserving of God's wrath and justice. Paul proves mankind isn't going to hell. Because God is a mean and needy and petty deity, right? Paul proves that mankind's not going to hell because, you know, God got his feelings hurt. Paul proves mankind is headed for judgment and torment because that's exactly what he wants. He doesn't want God. Mankind hates God. And because of that, mankind's condemnation is just. And so no one is innocent. No one is innocent. Now, from that particular point right there, Paul could have just jumped right in and moved right to his summary of the depravity of mankind in Romans chapter 3, where he wraps up and says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The truth is, Paul could have just rested there, right, and then moved on to the rest of the good news of the gospel and said, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. He could have just went from that precise judgment of mankind right into the good news that you're saved by grace, but he doesn't do that. He still has more to say. Paul in Romans 1 proves beyond a doubt that mankind deserves condemnation, and he could have easily moved on to the good news of God's grace, but he doesn't do it. Why? Well, well the reason for that is because there is a group of people who would be reading Paul's words who would heartily agree with Paul. They would read this part of Paul's letter and say, that's exactly right, Paul. You are right on the money. They are sinners. They deserve God's wrath. They are rightfully condemned. Right on, Paul. These people would have been quick to condemn others of their sin, not realizing that they, like David, deserve the same condemnation. And that's where he starts, by the way. When he writes... In verse 1, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Now, this is where we need to stop and ask ourselves, who is Paul specifically talking about here? Because what you need to realize is, is up to this point, 
From chapter 1, verse 18 to the end of chapter 1, Paul had been speaking in the third person plural. He'd been talking about a group of people, they. He kept saying, they. By the way, this is why pronouns need to be precise. But this is a different sermon. This is probably in reference to the Gentiles, those people who were overtly rejecting Yahweh, those who deny the truth of the one true God. He would use the term they, them, right? But now he changes from the third person plural to second person singular. Notice the the shift in, in thought. He goes from they to you. He says, you, O man. As if he's speaking to somebody very specific. Right? The old man is an emphasis on a certain type of familiarity. Now understand, this charge, this change in tone or and the change in subject is really, really important for us to follow here because there's a huge point that he's about to make here. And what we need to recognize is what Paul is doing in this part of the letter is he's engaging is what is known as a diatribe. A diatribe, which simply is a literary device where an author has a conversation with an imaginary person. I think we're familiar with that. We've seen people do that in dialogues right, or monologues. Right? It's a literary technique where the author has a back-and-forth conversation with someone who really essentially represents another person or actually a group of people to make a point. And you will see Paul doing this actually throughout Romans. You'll notice once now that you're aware of it that Paul does this quite often throughout Romans. In fact, he engages in diatribe, I think, all the way through to chapter 9 and beyond. So in chapter 2, Paul engages, changes his tone from a general indictment of, a, of, of mankind to a personal indictment of a specific kind of person represented in the diatribe. And it's important for us that we identify then who this person represents. Paul says, therefore, in light of this, right? When he says, therefore, he's basically saying, in light of this indictment of mankind, you have no excuse, O man, for every one of you who judge. There's the first hint there, by the way. Paul is now addressing someone who judges others. That's the beginning. That's the the first hint. And obviously, they were judging on the basis of what Paul said. Mankind's rejection of God is, 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 is covered in his sin and is rightly condemned. What we need to recognize is this person or group of people is in essence agreeing with Paul's assessment of humanity. They're saying that you are right Those people do deserve death. They deserve God's wrath. They they hate God and are rightly condemned. They are agreeing. This person is agreeing with Paul's assessments. Well, what kind of person would that be? Well, a person who would claim belief in God. It would be a religious person. A person who felt intimately connected to God on some level. And who then would that be? That would be someone Jewish. That's who Paul's talking about. He's talking to the Jews. He'd been talking now about the Gentiles. He moves on and now talks about the Jews. Because what makes the Jews different? What makes them different from the rest of the world? Well, first of all, they were selected by God to be His national people. 
And they were given the promise of, of Abraham that God would prosper them and grow them into a nation. And then that happened. God made them into a nation, and then God rescued them personally out of Egypt. And then He led them visibly out into the wilderness. And then He gave them the promised land, and He gave them the law, and He gave them the sign of circumcision to identify them and mark them out as different from everyone else. And then God's dwelling place was, at that time, within the city limits of Jerusalem. God was with them, at least... Theologically, these people, by who they were as a people group and a culture, were an acknowledgement of the existence of God in stark contrast to the Gentiles who denied God. Their whole identity was related to the fact that they were selected by God to represent Him in the world. That's why God set them apart. And so they would wholeheartedly listen to Paul's words and agree with his assessment of the Gentile world, saying that they do suppress the truth and unrighteousness. This imaginary person would agree God has given them up to sexual immorality and egregious sin. They would agree that the Gentiles traded the Creator for creation in order to worship false gods, and that they would agree what Paul said, that they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice, and they were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. They are gossips. They would agree that they were slanderers and haters of God and insolent and haughty and boastful, inventors of evil, uh, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They would agree with every bit of that. But now Paul addresses them and says, therefore, in light of all of that stuff that you're agreeing with, you have no excuse, O man who judges. Don't miss the connection here, by the way. Paul is leveling the playing field for everyone. In Romans chapter 1, he said that the Gentiles were without excuse. And now he says right here to the Jews, you also have no excuse. Paul is about to reveal to the self-righteous Jewish person that they are on the same level as the entire Gentile world. And then he says to everyone who judges, right? He says to everyone who judges. Now this is the place where a lot of people get really tripped up because if you read this and you stop reading here and you take this out of context, you're going to think that this is about something that it's not. Right? Because people will look at this and say, Paul is saying here, see, you're not supposed to judge anyone ever. That's, I've heard that before. People will, list, will, will quote this scripture and say, you're never, ever supposed to judge anyone. You Christians don't have a right to pass judgment. In fact, remember what Jesus said, right? They'll jump from here and go right to what Jesus said. You know, judge not lest ye be judged insinuating that Christians have no business ever calling sin, sin, and that we have no business calling people to repent of sin and to believe, and we have no business calling false teachers false teachers, because who do you think you are? You don't have any right to judge. The Bible says so. Paul is not indicting this person for judging what is true. Paul is accusing them of judging hypocritically. That's the issue. That's the point. And by the way, that was Jesus' point as well. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says as much. He says, judge not that you not be judged. 
And everybody stops there, but let's continue on. Jesus says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured against you, used to you. So the issue is hypocrisy. Jesus is not saying don't judge. He's saying don't judge unjustly or hypocritically. And then he goes on to even give an illustration of what he's talking about. He says, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye and do not notice the log in your own eye? Or can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when, you, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. There's the point. You hypocrites. First, take out the log of your own eye and then leave your brother alone. That's not what it says, right? Take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to be able to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, it's not about judging what's right and wrong. It's about judging in hypocrisy. Because notice Paul says, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. I'm going to tell you, when these words were received at first, it must have felt a little bit like a poke in the eye. Because what Paul, in essence, is saying, like Nathan said to David, you are the man. You're just as guilty. It was about hypocrisy. You see, the problem that the Jews had was similar to the problem that David had. They were presupposing that their connection with God gave them a pass. They believed their relationship with God gave them immunity to God's justice. The Jews thought that their salvation was tied to who they were as Jews. They thought that they had a right relationship with God simply because they were Jewish. Kent Hughes in his commentary points out that many Jews believed that everyone would be judged except the Jewish race. He goes on to point out that a common tradition, a common Jewish tradition claimed that Abraham himself sat at the gate of hell to keep the Jews out regardless of their deeds, by the way. In fact, he notes that uh, Trypho, a Jewish man, was alleged to have said that those who were the seed of Abraham according to the flesh shall in any case, even if they be sinners and unbelieving and disobedient toward God, share in the eternal kingdom. These people thought that they were God's people simply because they were ethnic Jews. Which, by the way, is an idea that is still very pervasive today. Many people, including many Christians, will say that the Jews are God's people simply because of their birth as Jews. They say that God is going to save them. Why? Because they're Jews. I've heard it before. I've heard it from pulpits before. I've heard it from very, very prominent like, pastors with, with big mega churches that will say the same thing, that God is just going to save the Jews because they're Jews. That is a lie. That was a lie then, and it's a lie now. Many Jews believed this lie at the time. They believed that they were immune to God's wrath simply because they were biologically related to Abraham and in their culture that they were Jewish. This was their cultural understanding of themselves. And this is why the Jews were known to be so arrogant towards the Gentiles, by the way. This is why they failed to be the light of the world 
that God called them to be. Remember, Jesus went into the temple and turned over the tables. Why? Because, because they had went into the temple or the court of the Gentiles, the place where the Gentiles were to be invited to worship, and they made it into a marketplace, making a mockery of God's mission. They literally saw themselves, because of their relationship to the nation of Israel, as superior. God's people by birth. Why? Because of their genetic heritage. This, by the way, is an issue that Paul firmly addresses in Galatians. He says that there, there is neither, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if that wasn't clear enough, he goes on and says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. You see, the Jews fancied themselves as God's elect people because of their biological connection to Abraham. But Paul makes it clear that God's people are not his people through biology, but through faith in the promise, the promised Christ, the Messiah. And it always has been about faith in that promise. It's never been about being what you are ethnically. In fact, Paul is going to make that point even clearer in verse 28 of the same chapter in Romans. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. In other words, being one of God's people, one of God's elect, is not simply about being born and raised Jewish. It is about... And how it has always been about faith in Christ. And more to, the, to Paul's point here, these Jews, they're not absolved of God's justice for their sin, no matter what they think of themselves. Again, Paul makes it clear, therefore, right? Therefore, you, you self-righteous Jewish person, have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the same things. You do the exact same things. You sin just like the Gentiles sin, but you think that you're, you're getting a free pass simply because you're Jewish. But then notice Paul says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Now notice again the shift. He moves from, from second person singular to first person plural. He moves from you to we. Who is Paul? A Jew, right? He says we, Jews, we know, right? We know because of what the law says, what sin is. We know it. And we know that God's justice and judgment is upon those who break the law and commit sin, right? And so, so they would stand in complete agreement with Paul on his assessment of mankind in the beginning of Romans. They would be like David. They deserve to die for what they have done. But then when Paul turns the tables and says, you, do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge, who practice such things, yet do them, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you actually think that you sitting in judgment of the Gentiles for their sexual immorality and their covetousness and their antisocial behavior toward other people, 
You think that you yourselves who commit the same things, that do you honestly believe that you're going to go scot-free, that God's going to just kind of wink his eye and let you go? Do you really think that you're going you're to get away with doing the same things that they do? And then Paul says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now, the word presume here, the ESV that they've chosen to use, I think it's a weak word. I don't think it does justice to the idea that Paul's trying to get across here. I mean, it does fit. It just, I don't think it has the emphasis. Because the Greek word that Paul uses here, kataproneus, kataproneus is in the present tense indicative active, meaning there's an ongoing action here. And the word that Paul uses literally means to despise. It means to have a low view of something. It means to show contempt for something. And what Paul is, is asking is, are you really going to, have, going to actively despise by your actions and show contempt for the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience with you? Do you really have such a low view of God's kindness and patience for you that you think that you can just live in sin Do you think that you you have such a low view of God's kindness towards you that you think that you could hypocritically judge others and do the same things that they're, they're, they're doing? Don't you know that God's kindness is not a sign of his weakness? Don't you know that God's kindness is not a sign that he's okay with your sin? But, but his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. That's why he's being kind to you. Brothers and sisters, if there's a truth that the world needs to hear, if there's a truth we as Christians need to be reminded of, is that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Bodhi says the same thing over and over again. He's like, God's grace is the fact that he woke you up this morning instead of killing you in your sleep for the sin that you did yesterday. Right? That's the kindness of God every single day that an unbeliever doesn't die, God's kindness is on full display towards them, that he doesn't give them instantaneously the justice they deserve. Don't you know that God's kindness is not a sign of weakness? It's not a sign of his ambivalence. It's meant to lead you to repentance. Now, this verse right here is a very popular one. Right? I love this verse, right? It's made its way on T-shirts and bumper stickers. And we hear it all the time. God's kindness leads to repentance. And I think that there's a kind of a softened kind of like tone that God's squishy kindness is meant, you know, that God is just good to us, you know, so it's meant to just draw us close. That's not what Paul's saying here, okay? He's very pointed in what he's saying here. What Paul, he uses the word kindness here. He's not talking about general benevolence and goodness. He is talking about a very specific thing, He is talking about not giving the Jews what they rightly deserve in the moment for their sin. Harrison, in his commentary, puts it like this. He goes, in this passage, tolerance or forbearance and patience seem to be explanatory of kindness, which is repeated as the governing thought. The word rendered forbearance has the idea of restraining wrath. In classical Greek, it is used of a temporary truce. 
Patience then refers to God's merciful tolerance of our failures. In other words, what Paul is saying is God's kindness is his restraining his wrath upon these people. His patience is his enduring their sin for the time being, giving them opportunity to come to faith. Here's what Paul is saying. How dare you sit in judgment of these Gentiles and, and their sin while you do the exact same thing because you are showing contempt for God's kindness towards you. You, just like the Gentiles, are deserving of God's wrath upon you for your sin. You, just like the Gentiles, are under His judgment. But God has restrained His wrath and God has tolerated you and your foolishness because He is being kind towards you. And this kindness is not a sign that you're okay. This kindness is, is not a sign that He's okay with your sin because you're Jewish. No, His kindness toward you is meant to give you ample opportunity to escape the wrath to come, the judgment that is to come, and that you can escape that through repentance and faith. Because we know, as He says, we know that, that the judgment of God rightly follow, uh, uh, falls on those who practice such things, including you. So repent. Paul is in essence saying, you think that you're right with God simply because you're Jewish and you agree with what sinfulness, what the, agree with the sinfulness of sin? Right? Do you think that that makes you immune? What you don't realize is that you are just as guilty as the Gentiles are, and Paul gets right to the issue of what's happening here and says, but because of your hard and impenitent, literally unrepentant, hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God, God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, there's a whole lot to see in just this one verse here, but let me unpack a couple of things. Number one, first of all, Paul gets to the root of their problem. This imaginary person who represents the Jewish people, this person who thinks that he's okay with God because of his relationship with him, suffers from the same issue that the Gentiles suffer from. And that is a hard heart towards God. Paul is saying is your problem is that you have a hard heart. And that, by the way, brothers and sisters, this is the universal problem of everyone. This is the issue that all of humanity faces. We are all predisposed to have hardened hearts to God. All of us. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is within them due to their hardness of heart. Now you might say, well, Sherman, all you did was prove this is related to the Gentiles. Great. Well, let's talk about, let's talk about the Jews then. Mark chapter 3, Jesus asks of the Jews around him, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm or to save life or to kill? But they were silent and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees, the Jews, went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Jesus worked a miracle and restored someone's life and their hearts are so hard they can't see that God just did something wonderful. They want to kill Jesus. The religious Jews had the same problem as the Gentiles do. They have hardened hearts towards God, and it just manifests itself differently. Right? But their hearts 
are hard nonetheless. Proverbs chapter 28, verses 13 through 14. Whoever conceals his transgression, notice this. This is the, this is the son of, this is king, the king himself. David writes these words. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, and whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. The universal problem of all of mankind is the hardness of heart. And the universal solution is the same. Our hard hearts must be supernaturally changed. By the way, this is what the, Ezekiel prop, the, the prophet Ezekiel writes. <clears throat> and I will give them a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What Paul is saying is that the Jews have the same underlying issue that the Gentiles do. They have hard hearts. And this shows up in the Gentiles as hardness towards God and His existence. And this shows up in the self-righteous Jewish people and their hypocrisy as they sit in judgment doing the same exact things of people that they condemn. This is the first issue that we see in this verse, is the hardness of heart towards God. The second thing we see in this verse, is it reminds us of the truth about God's wrath. Remember, Paul opens up the fact that the bad news is of the gospel is the wrath of God is being revealed. Right? It's, it's the offensive truth of God's wrath. Right? And what we come to tr- terms with is is as we explored that before, is that God's wrath is real. And God's wrath will be poured out on those who incur God's judgment. And even though that His wrath was being revealed in the moment from heaven as He judges individuals and nations, the fullness of God's wrath is yet to come. And what Paul is clearly saying is this wrath will be poured out on the Jews and Gentile alike who have been hardened and have unrepentant hearts towards God. In fact, Paul says that these self-righteous, hypocritical Jews who presume on their relationship with God are in the moment storing up for themselves treasuries full of God's wrath. What he's, the picture he's painting is by their activity that they are taking the wrath that's already there and multiplying it. They, by their actions, are, going, are receiving or for themselves mountains and mountains of God's terrible wrath because of their hypocrisy and unwillingness to repent of sin. But then finally, Paul reminds us of the importance of the doctrine of repentance. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. One of the things that we need to see here in this text is Paul does address the issue of repentance. Now, it is true the fact that Paul does spend the vast majority of his time in this letter talking about faith and being justified by faith, but Paul does not neglect the corresponding gift and doctrine of repentance. By the way, this is another subject that upsets people. This is a topic that upsets even Christians. 
People don't like to hear about God's judgment. People don't like to hear about hell. People do not like to hear about God's wrath, and they certainly don't like to hear about repentance. But repentance is an inescapable truth from the Scriptures. You can't get around it. Remember, Jesus himself said, when he began to preach the gospel, he said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. What? Repent and believe the gospel. Actually, the words that he uses literally means the time has come. The kingdom is here. Be present tense, repenting and believing the gospel because you don't repent and believe one time and then stop repenting and believing. It's an ongoing lifestyle. The thing that we must understand is our response to the message of the gospel is one of belief and repentance. You must have one to have the other. This, by the way, is the overwhelming testimony of the scriptures. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, in a similar message of what Paul is saying here, he tells his Jewish audience, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing any should perish, but all should reach, what? Repentance. Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Repent therefore and turn again that your sin may be blotted out. Acts 17.30, the, time, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Luke 13, verse 3, Jesus says, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Luke chapter 5, verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Bible makes it clear that our relationship with God is both turning to God in faith and repenting and turning from our sin. And the problem that the Jews had is they could not see the insufficiency of the relationship with God. They thought that because they believed that God existed and that they, and, and that they were part of some religious system, and because they were part of a group of people set apart by God that somehow, someway, that they were magically absolved and going to be spared the justice of God for their sin, not realizing that even demons believe in God, as James affirms. And even demons call Jesus Lord. Let's just go back through the Gospels and you'll see it. Even people like Pharaoh were set apart for God's purposes. By the way, when people say, always want to use the, well, God has a wonderful plan for your life. I say, it just depends on who you are, right? I mean, God had a wonderful plan for Pharaoh's life, but it wasn't wonderful for Pharaoh. What the Jews were missing was having the right posture toward God. Their issue was their faith in God was not grounded in their understanding of their need for God to save them. Their faith in God was grounded in who they were as a people group. They saw no need to turn from their sin. But, but any true relationship with God is founded on both faith and repentance. Now, our Baptist faith and message, which is the statement of faith that we use here, it's a 2000 Baptist faith and message. In article chapter 4 on salvation, it reads, Salvation involves the redemption of the whole man and is offered freely to all who accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who by His own blood ob obtained eternal redemption for the believer. In the broadest sense, salvation includes regeneration, or being born again, justification, being saved or made righteous, 
sanctification, where God cleans us up, and then glorification, where we finally are delivered from sin and we're present with the Lord. There is no salvation, it says, apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. And then it goes on to explain, regeneration of the new birth is the work of God's grace, whereby believers become new creatures in Christ Jesus. It's a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit through conviction of sin, to which the sinner responds in repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It says that repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of grace. Repentance is a genuine turning from sin towards God. Faith is the acceptance of Jesus Christ and the commitment of the entire personality to Him as Lord and Savior. You see, the problem that the Jews had was, their, was the fact that their unrepentant hearts caused by their flawed view of themselves kept them from seeing their need. They knew God and His righteous decrees. That just made them religious. But they didn't truly examine themselves because in their minds and hearts, their relationship with God was based on their identity rather than their need for Him, to turn to Him in repentance from sin and in faith in the Messiah. And this hard, unrepentant heart makes them arrogant and self-righteous and prideful and even leads them to believe that they're deserving of salvation simply because they're Jews. By the way, again, notice the correspondence of how many legalistic, self-righteous, religious people end up just like them. Right? Well, I'm a Christian. I'm better than you. No, you ain't. I mean, we've all experienced that self-righteous, you know, person who would look down their nose at you rather than just share the love of Christ with you. How come you're not like me? The thing that we, that these people didn't see is their need for repentance because they thought they were okay based on their own experience with God. Like David, David had no problem issuing judgment against a wrongdoer not realizing that he was just as guilty before God. It wasn't until God used Nathan to convict him that he could finally see his hypocrisy. But here's the thing about David. Being someone who was truly born again. Once he was confronted with the truth about his sin, David did what all true believers will do. He repented of that sin. David, upon being confronted immediately by Nathan, he says the words, I have sinned against the Lord. And not just that. In fact, this, this particular, bless you, that woke me up. Thank you. But this particular egregious sin before the Lord actually prompted him to write the 51st Psalm. And I'd just like to read for you the first part of that. Just hear David's broken heart for realizing what he's done to God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He recognizes clearly by looking in the mirror of God's law what he has done. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned and have done what is evil in your sight. There is no 
well, they did this, so I did that. It is like taking responsibility. And so you may be justified in your words and blameless in your what? Your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in the truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret hearts. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me. Listen to these words. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your willing spirit. David, upon seeing his horrific sin, was broken by that sin. It bothered him. He hated it. And he repented of that sin and turned to God in faith to be saved from that sin. The Jews foolishly didn't see their need to repent and seek forgiveness. And because of that, they were just as bad off as the Gentiles who were rejecting God. They were just as guilty before God as those who suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. And so what Paul is doing is he's building a comprehensive case against all of humanity, Jew and Gentile alike. And he will say, as he will say in chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all deserve the wages of sin, which is death. And he's going to do this, not because he's trying to make people feel guilty or beat people up. He's trying to do this to demonstrate that the good news of the gospel is completely by the grace of God and that alone. Salvation is completely by grace through faith and not because of what we do or because of the culture that we're in or the family that we were born in. Salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what it's always been. That's what it always will be. Now, with that truth, let's talk about a couple things to reflect on this week with this text. First of all, this text, it teaches us to walk, I think, in humility. Because the truth is, it reminds us of the fact that there's nothing in us. There is nothing in us or about us that warrants God's grace and mercy. You are not saved because you go to church. We are not saved because God graciously allowed us to be born in the United States of America. You are not saved by your skin color. You are not saved because grandmama told you that you were a Christian since you were five years old. You're not saved because you feel warm and fuzzy singing worship songs. You were not saved because you are a good person. You were not saved because you're part of, a, of, of the right political affiliation. You're not saved because, because you get offended when somebody says happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. There's nothing in us. There's nothing about us that warrants salvation. There's nothing in us that deserves God's mercy. There is nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing about you that obligates God to look your direction and say, I need to give them a shot. There's nothing there. All you have given God was more than enough reason to send you to hell, to condemn you. We are saved by grace alone 
through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we are kept saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. As the hymn writer once wrote, Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross of Christ I cling. And so then, because of that, it ought to establish in us a posture of humility with the rest of the world because we have nothing to brag about except Christ. When you encounter someone who's in unrepentant sin, your attitude shouldn't be, well, you just look at that horrible person. No. We should rather be brokenhearted and for them and reminding ourselves if it were not for God's grace, we would be just like them. Now understand, we still need to proclaim the truth. We still need to call sin what it is, sin. And we are called to bear witness to the truth about God and His holy standard and His wrath and His justice against sin. And we are still called to tell people to repent and believe the gospel. We don't do this from a position of smug arrogance. We do this, in fact, knowing God's righteous decree, but not from a position of self-righteousness. We do what we do self-consciously understanding we deserve God's justice just the same as anyone else. But it's only His grace and His mercy that has spared us. And so we as Christians have nothing to be prideful about. We as Christians ought to be the most gracious, loving, forgiving people in the world because that's exactly what God was toward us. Second, we need to examine our hearts. We need to examine our hearts. We need to do this regularly because there is a natural tendency in all of us as we progress and as we mature and as we get to make a little headway and have some success that we begin to think a little more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Let's just be honest. We can do that. Or at least I'll be honest and say it, it happens to me too. We have this tendency to see everyone else's faults and flaws and then fail to recognize the same things in ourselves which leads to a tendency to be judgmental, which leads to a tendency to blame others for our own problems. Oftentimes, we'll fail to recognize our responsibility in circumstances and our relationships with other people, not realizing that we are just as much part of the problem as, as they are. I mean, yes, a person may be rude to us, but what did we do to contribute to the situation? Probably more than we were willing to admit. Oftentimes, we're quick to find the faults in everyone else around us but we're super slow to admit our own faults. And sometimes the faults that we're willing to admit are just the very obvious ones that everybody can see on the surface that you can't get away with anyway. But as Christians, we ought to have responsibility enough to examine our own hearts and motives for what we do and take responsibility where we fall short so we don't damage the witness that we have to the world. And more importantly, that we don't become self-righteous. And then finally, we need to remind ourselves that faith and repentance go hand in hand. As our statement of faith puts it, repentance and faith is, is inseparable experiences of grace. Repentance is a genuine turning from sin towards God. And faith is the acceptance of Christ and a commitment to the entire personality to, uh, to Him as, a, as Lord and Savior. What this means is for us as Christians, we continue to walk in faith and repentance the rest of our lives. That means when you fall down and make a mess of things, you don't run from God. 
You don't hide from God. Right? You don't you know, rationalize, well, I, I got to get my life together before I, get, I, before I come back to God. The truth is, right, you need to repent and continue to believe the God that, that saves you. When you fall into sin, don't put yourself in a spiritual penalty box. You need to immediately turn to God away from your sin and say, Lord Jesus, save me. And, you, and, and, and we will continue, by the way, in this, we will have to continue to come back to the same posture over and over again. Even if you keep falling into the same sin, you need to keep repenting and believing, trusting in Christ alone to save you. Because the truth is, you might fall into the same sin 10,000 times. But you, if you're born again, you will repent of that sin 10,001 times. And you will continue to believe that Christ can and will be the one to save you from that sin because you can't do it yourself. Otherwise, you stop sinning. You see, our hope is not in who we are. Our hope is not in our own ability to just not do certain things or to do certain things. Our hope is not in the family we're born into or the church that we attend. Our hope isn't even in our ability to never, ever sin again. Our hope is believing the truth about who God is and about who we are in light of who God is. And what God has done for us in spite of who we are, in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, our right response to that truth is always to repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the message that we have to take to the rest of the world, right? So let's settle this in our hearts and minds so we can settle it for the rest of the world. As a Christian, I don't think I'm better than anyone else. Because I'm not. As a Christian, I don't fancy myself as who, who, who never ever makes mistakes or sins. Because I do. I fall into it. The difference between me and someone else is simply the grace of God giving me the, the gift and the ability to repent and keep turning back to God. And one of the greatest gifts that God has given me is the truth that I can still continue to be stupid and ignorant and make the same mistake 50 times a day and fall in the same sin a thousand times a day and God still calls me to do the same thing. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Hold on to Christ. Right? The words of Paul Washer ring true in my ears. Right? When you fall down, turn to Christ and grab hold of Him and said, you promised. You promised to save me in spite of me and I'm holding on to that and that alone. That promise. And by the way, that's the truth that you have to offer the rest of the world. Not some... I'll never sin again, piety. But if there's hope for me, that means there's hope for you. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.